beginning reading in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 22, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, humility is not thinking meanly of yourself, not berating yourself, actually just not really thinking of yourself at all. Humility is the ability to put other people's needs, other people's interests above that of your own, thinking of other people before you think of yourself. And that's definitely an example that Christ left for us. In fact, as we consider this idea of humility today, I see it flowing throughout this passage. It starts with Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection. Theologians have labeled the death of Christ the humility of Christ because he humbled himself leaving the the splendors of heaven, he humbled himself and came to earth as a person and then humbled himself yet further to become a servant and humbled himself completely by going to the cross. That's exactly what Philippians in chapter 2 tells us. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now that goes against all of your modern psychology these days. But we're told to take care of number one. In fact, we've even had some people that have twisted around some Bible passages. When Jesus told us the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then it says the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point is you already love yourself. It's amazing how many problems in our own life can get solved just by focusing on helping somebody else. We're far too important to ourselves, and we can inflate a lot of problems when we're focused on ourselves. If we can get to focus off of ourselves and focus on helping other people, a lot of those things just go right to where they need to be. And that's what Jesus was telling us. We need to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But some people have twisted that and said, See, you cannot properly care for other people until you know how to care for yourself. It puts it right back to where you're focused on self again. And that's exactly not what he was saying. Well, as we get to Philippians chapter 2, we're told not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain deceit, but we're supposed to look higher, more important to other people's needs. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this mind that he's just been talking about, where he put other people's needs above your own, is the mind that we find in Christ. And then it's going to show his example. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness 
of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see, it's talking about Jesus letting go of heaven, being willing to leave heaven, be born a man, go through a life of human suffering, walking in our shoes. He lived as a servant and then offering up his own life on the cross for us. That is the extreme act of humility. And all through this passage, we see humility. We see Jesus talking about his humility as he tells his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. And then we see the humility of Jesus again expressed with this whole idea of paying the tax. Peter says, yeah, he pays taxes. And then when he comes into the house, Jesus has this conversation with Peter where he's basically saying, should I pay taxes? He says, when kings of the earth collect a tax, who do they collect it from? Do they collect it from their own children or do they collect it from other people? And Peter rightly answers, they collect it from other people. It's actually to support the king and his family, his children. So they collect it from other people and the, the king's family benefit from it. And so Jesus says, well, then the children of the king are free. Well, what is the point that he's making? This tax is a temple tax. It's not a tax, a civil tax by the Roman government. Like when we saw Matthew being a tax collector, he was collecting civil taxes for the Roman government. But the Roman Empire allowed the nation of Israel to collect this one tax. And it was a tax that everybody in Israel, if you look back to Exodus chapter 30, you'll find that God instituted this tax. It was a, it was a half a shekel tax that would be collected from everybody that was 20 years old and above. And it was to go to the functioning of the temple to help provide for the needs of the, at that time, the tabernacle, later the temple. This is a tax that is collected for the temple. Now, what's Jesus pointing out to Peter? Jesus at the temple has said, this is my Father's house. With God His Father being the King of the world, Jesus being His Son, then the temple tax that is collected for the Father's house, would it be collected from His child? And so He's using this opportunity with Peter to say, Peter, now recognize who I am. Should I have to pay this tax or not? And Peter says, no, the children don't pay the tax. And so Jesus is making it very clear that you know what, he's the ch he's a child of God. He's not subject to the tax. But then he says, in order to not create any offense, we don't want to cause any problems about this, let's just pay the tax. So the point is, Jesus pointed out to Peter that I'm exempt from this tax. I'm, I don't have to pay this tax. Even though it's required not, not just by human law, but by God's laws, all the way back in Deuteronomy 30, I'm the Son of God. So actually, I would be exempt from paying this tax. But then he turns around and he submits to it. So Christ humbles himself by paying the tax. And then as we hit chapter 18, the disciples come and they gather there with Jesus. And they ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Luke's account of it says they even got into an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And I could see some of them having something to stand by. You know, Peter, James, and John got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's got to put them in the running, right, to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They got to see, they got to meet Moses and Elijah. Peter's got to be thinking, I walked on water. I was the first to say he's the Christ. I, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm in the running here. And this argument breaks out about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus do? He takes a child and he sets him before him. And he says, you've got to become humble like a little child. That is what equals greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So as we consider that today, as we look all throughout this passage, we see humility written all over it. 
We see the humility of Christ expressed. We see a lesson on humility for them. In my own life, I see that same struggle. There's a lot of times I need lessons on humility as well. It's just it's part of our sinful nature to raise self up and to put self first. And we're good at it. We're good at it from the time we're very little. When we're little infants, can't even talk yet. We're demanding that everybody's schedule meet our schedule. We scream it out loud when we have something that we want or need. And then even as we're little kids, as we begin to grow, I love I love being around kids and watching my grandkids and. And and a lot of times they'll tell, man, you're good at that. You know, they're, they're doing something. You're good at that. You know what they usually tell me? Yep. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we 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 have that just kind of built right right in us, and and we have to be taught things like sharing, and we have to be taught to be considerate of other people's needs and to grow in our humility. But that's exactly what Jesus is helping his disciples grow in at this moment. And that's hopefully what he's helping us grow in this morning as well. It does catch you off guard sometimes. You kind of work on being more humble, being more others oriented. And then you get to where you, oh yeah, I'm doing good. No, I guess I'm not. <laughs> it's just the nature of, of, the, of the issue. As I look through this passage and I recognize three tests, three things that that test our humility, that pushes to the limit. Now, a test in the Bible is seen in both ways. It tests the fortitude and it's also building. It's like when a teacher gives you a test. A teacher gives you a test in school and it's to do two things, actually. It's supposed to measure what you've accumulated. But the second thing is it's supposed to do is it's supposed to promote knowledge within the course. How many of you have ever taken a test and gotten something wrong on there that you've never forgotten since? The process of the testing itself reinforces the truths that you've been learning the whole semester or the whole quarter. And so the test has those two functions. And so as we look at this passage today, I want us to keep that in mind. These things that we look at both test our humility in proving whether or not we have very much of it and also in encouraging us to grow in it as well. So the first test that we see that Jesus lists out dealing primarily with himself at this point is persecution. Persecution tests your humility. And that whole example that we've already talked about and we went to Philippians 2 to do it, we see Jesus. And Jesus in this passage is predicting his coming suffering. It's the third time that he's alluded to it since chapter 16 when he first it was brand new news to the disciples. They're still, they're going to be, it says they're going to be greatly distressed. But if you read the other Gospels account of this as well, they're still not going to quite be completely sure what he's talking about. It's going to cause them some anxiety this time. They're not just going to fiddly dee it. They're not just going to let it fly over their head, but at the same time, they still don't really completely, they don't get that he's literal, completely literal in all this, I think. But Jesus predicts it. He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. So as he's looking at his own humility, it's going to be tested, it's going to be proven. You know what, our humility is often proven through the same thing. I like what uh, commentator, I think it was Warren Mearsby, that said, it is hardest to act like a servant when you're treated like one. And you know what, it's, it's hardest to be humbled when we're persecuted, when we're, when we're demeaned, when we're ridiculed. There's something in us that just makes us want to rise up and lash back. But you know what, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that. In fact, as he went and went through 
court cases and everything in in that night before he was crucified. And he sat before people that were sitting in judgment on him from high priests to, to kings to governors. And he sat before these people and says that he opened not his mouth. He didn't even speak up in his defense. Jesus completely humbled himself. Now there was a reason. I think there were other times when he did speak up in his own defense to, to demonstrate that he was God's son. But his purpose at the time was to go to the cross. And he wasn't going to be distracted from it. He wasn't going to try to rescue himself from that because he was doing it on purpose to accomplish our forgiveness. That's the easiest time is when people are making accusations, especially like in the trial of Christ where people are making false accusations and they don't even agree together. That really tests our humility when we feel like we got to lash back. When we got to, somebody says something derogatory about you, you got to hit them right back. That really is a test of your humility. Now, Jesus humbles himself at the cross. As I said, he's, he's doing it on purpose. And we're just about that point. Jesus, for the last six months, has been kind of retreated with his disciples up in the northern region where it's more quiet, more training time for his disciples. And when you get to Matthew 19, he's going to turn and start heading to Jerusalem. And he's still going to accomplish a lot of things along the way, a lot of teaching, a lot of miracles along the way to Jerusalem. But nevertheless, he's going to be bent on getting to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So all the times before when he said, It's not yet time, it's not yet time. Now all of a sudden he knows it's time, it's coming. So off to Jerusalem he goes. Luke chapter 13, verse 22 says he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 33, it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered into the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Keep that in mind, that little list of things. They're going to flog him. They're going to be whipping him. They're going to be spitting on him, mocking him. Remember, they dressed him in a king's robe. They they blindfolded him and slugged him in the face and said, if you're really the Son of God, tell us who hit you. They made a crown of thorns and they drove it into his head with a stick. All these things to humiliate him, to persecute him. How hard would it have been to have put up with that? John chapter 10, verse 15 says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in verse 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And then in John chapter 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, when it's time, He makes a beeline for Jerusalem. Accomplishing things along the way, but He's got to get to Jerusalem. Because at Jerusalem, all is going to happen to Him that is spoken of in the prophets. He's going to receive this humiliation, this mocking, this beating, this spitting upon. He's going to endure all that. He will not say, deliver me from this. Because this is why I came. This is the purpose. I had to come to this hour. And then we couple that with Matthew chapter 26. Remember when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden? And Peter pulls out a sword and cuts that guy's ear off and Jesus heals him. This is what Jesus says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? 
But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so at any moment while they were driving that crown of thorns in his head or while they blindfolded him and punched him in the face or while they are pulling the beard, the hair out of his beard, while they're spitting upon him and crying out at any moment, he says, I could, have, I could appeal to the Father and he'd send over 12 legions of angels, a legion of 6,000 soldiers. So it's over 72,000 angels at any moment at my beck and call. They're here to deliver me from this. And he endures it. He takes it willingly. If that's not a test of your humility, I don't know what is. That'll push you to the limit. I can't imagine going through some of that and not getting to the point where you say, all right, forget it. (laughs) I was dying for you anyway. But Jesus doesn't do that. He remains humble through that persecution all the way to death. Disciples, we're supposed to be ready to do the same thing. In fact, Jesus told us, if we remember back to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, remember that? Uh, one of the Beatitudes we find in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then this is the one of the Beatitudes that he took and made it even more personal, more pointed to them. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus said, as we become persecuted, if you get made fun of for your faith or, or you miss out on a promotion for your faith or a raise because of your faith, if you're ridiculed, count it all joy because that's what they did to the prophets too. You're on a good team if that happens to you. The apostles learned it. When we get to Acts chapter 5, you find Peter and John have been teaching in, in the temple and, and they're declaring the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ and they get arrested in, in, at the end of chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Religious leaders don't know what to do with them. And finally they decide to threaten them. We'll just threaten No more teaching in this name, Jesus. You guys just go home and be quiet. And they say, we've got to obey God. Then in chapter 5 they get arrested again. And it says, when they had called in the apostles and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They endured the beating and when they left they rejoiced. Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. It's worth suffering for. It's worth the humiliation. Persecution, being belittled, those things will test your humility. But it's a test that we need to overcome. Peter learned this point, and by the time he gets to his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4, he tells them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's telling him, don't think that this is strange. If, if people make fun of you for this, if people persecute you for this, if you're under some fiery trial because of your faith, he says, don't think it's strange. It's normal. And if people are going to belittle you because of your faith, your relationship to Jesus Christ, then endure it cheerfully. You're blessed. He says we should never be in trouble for doing something stupid or wrong. You know, we should be doing good. But if you're doing good, if you're living a God-honoring life and you're being belittled for it, then be happy about that. Take it. Suffer the humiliation. That's, that's good. 
Persecution definitely tests our humility. When people rise up against us, when people belittle us in some way, we just feel like lashing back. Don't. You don't need to. Let God deal with that stuff. But secondly, not only persecution, but submission tests your authority. And for this, I'd move into the next section where Jesus pays taxes. And we've talked about what that tax is. And the tax was about two days' wages for somebody. And so it's not an overly small tax, but it is only once a year that they have to come up with it. It was often paid by two people together because there's not a half shekel coin. And so a lot of times two people together would pay the full shekel. And I think that's why Jesus does that with Peter here. Might might be something, too, that Peter may, might think that has him a little more in running for the best in the kingdom do when Jesus paid my taxes. He's pointed out that I'm not subject to this payment, but then he turns around and humbles himself and pays the tax. We're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to humble ourselves before authorities in our world. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul would write and say, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the God, what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. God intends for us to submit to the authorities that we're under in our life. He put us under those authorities in our life. And the whole concept of that passage of Romans is basically saying you submit to the authorities because those authorities are in your life under God's authority. So in submitting to them, you're submitting to God. In other words, in rebelling to them, you're rebelling against God. When I was in school, I remember my first teacher when I moved to a new town, a new school, was the wife of a lady that, of a guy that worked with my dad. And my dad told me before I started school, if you mess up in school, I'm going to hear about it. And you get in trouble at school, you're in trouble at home. And that's just so that was a rule in our house. If you lock horns with the teacher, when you get home, you're the one in trouble. I do remember one occasion where the teacher definitely did wrong in a situation regarding me and my dad. My dad, after hearing the situation, went to bat for me, no doubt about it. But every other time when I was in school and there was a conflict between me and a teacher or me and a principal, I was the one that paid when I got home. He made no bones about it that those people were in authority in my life and I needed to submit. I remember one time in high school I got in some trouble when I was in the principal's office and the principal said, I'm going to call your dad. And I had to stand there and watch him call my dad. And he was on the phone and I saw this man's face change. And he got off and he hung up the phone and he looked up at me and he says, your dad just told me to nail you to the wall. I just kind of shrugged. Yep. <laughs> I could have told you that would be the outcome of it. But, but uh, you know, that was my dad made no bones about it. There's authority structures that are put in your life and they're there for a reason. And you'll, you'll obey them just like you do me. And that's what, that's what God's saying. God says these authority structures in your life, they're there for a purpose. I have a reason for those. 
I have a reason for that authority, and you need to submit to that. And at the time that these things are being written, when Paul's in, he's in the Roman Empire, Rome is collecting the taxes over Jerusalem and over Israel. Rome promoted things like slavery and abortion could be done to like 12 years old. The father had, had control over the life of his children to that extent. Rome was not just a, a, a utopia on earth, but at the same time, God told him Rome has its place. God has instituted it. That was who was in charge under God. And you will pay taxes there. You will submit there to that authority. They're there for a reason. Sometimes I get a lax in that kind of thing when I think about, like, in, in driving. You know, Lisa, Lisa's more of a kind of a stick to it, a follower of the rules or in the driving thing. And she's like, get in your own lane. And I'm like, nobody else is coming. You know, I'm just kind of the lanes are kind of guidelines there, I tell you. And, and, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm a little bit more relaxed about it. And, and on our trip recently, when we went out to Washington and we came back, we're going through Montana. You know, I used to always try to hit Montana in the daylight because Montana, there used to be a billboard there when you first crossed into, into the state that said nighttime driving was uh, 60, trucks were 60 back at that time, if I remember right. And then it said daytime, reasonable and prudent. So we always wanted to hit Montana. It's a really long state. You get really tired of Montana. And so I always wanted to hit that in the daylight so you didn't have a very much of a speed limit. And so you could just go. Now the speed limit across Montana is 80. So on our way home, I'm driving down the highway. All of a sudden I know coming the other way is a, is a police officer and his lights come on and he goes down in the grass because it's a divided highway, down in the grass, ripping around and up on our, and then now he's heading our way. So he was going the opposite way, now he's heading our way. And I thought, wow, wonder who he's after. And so I went past one more car, and then I moved over, and then he finally catches up, and it was me. He was pulling me over. And that surprised me. Anyway, he came walking up alongside my, uh, my window, and, and, and he says, hi. I said, I said, why did you pull me over? And he said, well, you're, you're speeding. And I said, isn't the speed limit 80 miles an hour here? And he said, yeah, you're doing 84. And so he went through all that just to pull me over for 84. Now, here, here's my logic. I'm thinking, okay, if you're setting your speed limit at 80 miles an hour, do you really care? I mean, that's pretty high. I mean, do you re- uh, and to me, if you're setting that speed limit at 80 miles an hour, you're basically saying, this is the Audubon. I don't care how fast you go. <laughs> right? And so I was... 84, I figured I'm kind of doing it. I'm I'm fine. But you know what? He went through pretty good effort to get back to me and let me know you're not fine. And then he he scolded me a little bit. He said, you know, I'm from Minnesota, thankfully, because he did let me off. He said, I'm from Minnesota. He says, so I know that they only let you go 65 most of that place. And so we're letting you go quite a bit faster than that here. So you keep it down, okay? And I said, yeah, thanks. And he, and he let me go. The laws are there for a reason. And I was wrong by not being subject to that law. The laws are actually, is it blessed in that passage, there for our good. It keeps the road safer for everybody. And so uh, I, was, I was wrong by stepping out from under that authority. And he stopped and let me know it. It is right for us to submit to authority, but there's just something in us that says 80 is 84. Something in us that says, are you really in control of my life or am I in control of my life? I remember reading years ago about a, an experiment that they did with little kids. They were all playing in the backyard. And they told them, you can do anything, have a great time in the backyard. There's only one rule. Don't spit in those rocks over there. Before you know it, they were making a game out of spitting in the rocks over there. They would have probably never spit all day in the rocks over there if nobody told them not to do it. But they all end up doing it. 
There's just something in us. There's that rebellious nature that wants to not submit to authority. So much so, I was looking for a, a better word for this. Because the other two started with P, and I couldn't find one word that meant submit that started with a P. So I'm typing it into a thesaurus and everything online. I was astounded. I typed in the word submit, and it come up with a whole bunch of single words, and then it, and then it comes up with phrases that are synonymous to what you're talking about. And you know what the phrases were? The phrases for the word submit were to eat crow, to give in, to go with the flow, grin and bear it, knuckle under, to lay down arms, to resign oneself, to say uncle, or to throw in the towel. They're all negative. They're all like to submit means to eat crow. It means to knuckle under, to give in, to, to say uncle. They're all negative. In the Christian life, submitting is not negative. We submit to God's authority. Under His authority, we submit to our parents. We submit to our teachers. We, we submit to, to the government officials and police officers. That Submitting is a good thing. It's what we're supposed to do. But all these, our society looks at it like if you're submitting, then you're beaten. Then you're pushed down. Then you're trodden down. Nothing can be further from the truth. We're supposed to submit to one another. Wives submit to husbands. Employers or employees are supposed to submit to employers. There's structure in our society. Submission is required for society to function, whether it's in a family, a school, or a workplace, or, or society at large. Submission is not a bad thing. Now, there is one time when we are to not submit to the authorities that are over us, and that is when it brings us to directly disobeying God's Word. If God has told us you do this, and the authority in our life, human authority tells us you do the opposite, so you have to violate God's principle in order to follow the, then we got to go with God. And that's exactly what we saw in the book of Acts chapter 4 when they were arrested. So that when they recalled them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, and that's what, exactly what God had told them to go do. It says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. So Peter and John, though they would have submitted to this authority on other issues, would not submit when it came to directly violating what God told them to do and keeping silent about the gospel. Well, in chapter 5, when they were arrested by the same group again, and this time beaten, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so there is that one time that we're not supposed to submit to the authorities around us. It's only if our higher authority, God, would have to be violated to carry out uh, our obedience to the laws before us. And then lastly is perspective. Perspective is a test of our humility. What our perspective is, is we're looking at the events that are going on around us, at life Itself, And for this, we come to that last part in, in Matthew chapter 18, where the apostles come before Jesus, or they're arguing before Jesus, and they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells them, your perspective is completely wrong. He says, you want to know who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'm going to bypass the whole group of the 12 of you, and I'm going to call this little child up over here. You've got to humble yourself like a child to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, in the kingdom of the world, the greatness, greatness is in the people of power, people of, of prestige, influence. That's how the world measures greatness. In Christ's kingdom, it's very different. Christ's kingdom, the greatest person is the servant, the one who will humble himself and meet the needs of other people, just like Jesus humbled himself and met 
our needs. You know that conversation that the disciples are having about who's the greatest in the kingdom? That child wouldn't even think of entering that conversation. You think about that? I mean, think about when you were a kid. Your parents would be having all these conversations going on, and you know that you're not any part of that conversation because that's an adult conversation. I don't mean adult as in the content of it, but it's a conversation amongst the adults. That's their business. I don't even have a, I don't even have a part in that conversation. I know that there were times as a kid when I would listen to my parents and as they're visiting with other people and they would be talking, but I didn't talk. You just listened because that's the adults having a conversation. You didn't even look at yourself as up on that level to be a, a participant in anything. This child wouldn't even have considered you know, coming into that conversation and say, well, what about me? Those aren't the only guys that are in the running for the best in the kingdom, are they? He's just thinking, I'm just a kid. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing toward, is that, is that humility. If you're looking at your greatness by who's in charge, who's in power, he says you're looking at it wrong. You need to be looking at it like, who can I help? How can I serve? That's where true greatness is found.